Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk about all things crisis management, and we deliver that through interviews, storytelling, and lessons learned from crisis leaders. I'm Tom Mueller, coming to you today from Austin, Texas. I want to welcome my co-host, Mark Mullen, who's joining us from Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Mark. Hello, Tom. Hey, it's good to be with you again, Mark. And we're, we're going to do something a little different on today's podcast. Rather than focusing on the traditional operational type crisis, we're going to take a look at a broader business crisis that developed following the acquisition of the Castro Lubricants Company by BP back in 2000. Our guest today was chief marketing officer for Castrol during that time, and subsequently developed quite the resume as a chief marketing officer and an executive in the retail space. Holly Flynn, welcome to the podcast. And if you would, please take a moment and introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks, Tom and Mark. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Um, You've got a great podcast with a, a growing following. So thanks for inviting me on. Describe myself as a builder a builder of brands and businesses and people. And I've had the pleasure of doing that um, across multiple retail and energy industries. Tom and you and I got to know each other at BP. And then I was a CMO in both operating and marketing roles. And then CMO for Castrol, CMO for the BP group shortly after the oil spill. And then had a chance to work for Walmart in a senior executive C-suite operating role in the United States, and most recently worked for Giant Eagle, uh, both as their CMO for a period of time, as well as the president of their convenience retailing business. So um, it's a real pleasure to be with you here today. All right, Polly, thanks again for for joining us. On the uh, Castro situation, set the stage for us, if you will. What was the, the situation and what were you prepared for? Well, this was my second stint in living in the UK, and uh, it happens that the Castro headquarters are located in Swindon, which is a good almost 100 miles uh, west of uh, London city centre. And uh, what's funny, uh, Tom and Mark, was two lions sit at the entrance of the Castro headquarters in Swindon. And I, first time I ever visited their headquarters after getting the new role, you know, coming over to the UK a second time, was wonder, understanding whether I was supposed to be scared or protected as I entered these headquarters. <laughs> so it kind of set the stage. Um, Castro at that time had been part of the beat, had been acquired about four years earlier um, by BP. BP was looking for a, uh, a a good fit for their consumer-facing businesses. Uh, their own lubricants business was relatively nascent in size, uh, mostly focused in Europe. And so Castro was a prize acquisition. Uh, it was did business in 100 over con- countries. It was the number one quality premium lubricants, motor oil lubricants brand across the world just outside of the U.S., Mobile One had the had the pole position in the United States, but across the rest of the world, or most of the world, Castro was number one. So coming in, the myself and the CEO were appointed to come in outside of the of the Castro and what had been the uh, a few other BP executives that had come across, and so we were told to fix it uh, as. 
the acquisition and the integration hadn't been going very well. Profit had dropped from half of what it had been when BP acquired Castrol. And as you both know, when you're buying a company, typically you don't expect income and profitability to go the opposite direction. You want it to actually, your, your deal economics are based on it actually improving and usually significantly. And so we were asked to come in with a fresh set of eyes and see what it would take to take this great business uh, and great uh, with some great capabilities, some great assets, some great people, and see what if we could turn around and get back to the to the uh, business that BP bought. So a, a challenging situation, obviously, that you you're walking into. Now, would you characterize? that business as in crisis at this point in time in terms of you know where the business was relative to the expectations at the time of the merger yeah i think i would i think it's you know crisis all of a sudden your hair stands on end. but i think there was a great deal of concern and uh that after four years the integration hadn't been put to bed that profitability was was going south that customers were beginning to make noises, long-term customers about leaving the business. And as a result of that, it was certainly a simmering um, uh, amount of pressure, internal pressure to say what's happening here and did we, did we make a mistake? And if so, do we need to do something more dramatic to fix the mistake? And we were kind of brought in to see if we could turn around what was turning into a, a relatively material mistake for BP and its acquisition strategy. Well, oftentimes it seems, you know, there's confusion in the integration process, the clear objectives aren't set, or there's just internal resistance to making things happen. Was there a particular driver that you found when you got in there in terms of what was uh, sort of compromising the company's ability to to be a top-notch competitor? Yeah, I think that the it was multiple things. But if I was to kind of point out probably two or three areas that they had had struggled with over the since the integration, uh, one of the areas that they had struggled with was just really simplifying how they were going to go to market. They went what we would call direct, which is a salesman walking into a workshop, a mechanic shop, uh, uh, your local BMW or your local Ford dealer, and literally selling Castro product into those facilities. And that was becoming a way of doing business that you could do it in some countries, but not in a lot of modern countries. You really needed to, to work a different way. There were certain countries, too, where it just wasn't at all uh, a profitable to have Castrol salespeople on the ground, and you could use a distributor to do that business. And also, the emerging countries were uh, moving forward with motor transportation. So this is the Chinas and the Vietnams. It's hard to believe that at that point, motorbikes were just becoming fashionable. This was in the kind of 20, uh, you know, 2006, 2010 period. But in the developing countries, people were actually getting motorized transport in a material way for the first time. And 
Castro was entering all of these markets in all the same way. And um, as a result of that, burning a lot of cash and increasing a lot of expenses and not necessarily getting the margin dollars that they needed. The other piece of it, which is a little bit closer to home, I was a chief marketing officer for Castro for the for the global uh, business. And we were going to market with a dual branded strategy, what I would call a house of brands where BP and Castro were actually going after the same channels of trade. They were virtually in some cases having very similar value propositions, uh, even though the technical specs were different between the uh, products. And as a result of that, you're cannibalizing your own your own business by basically going to market. We had two sales groups still at that time, a BP sales group and a Castro who were who were kind of tussling over uh, over different customer groups. So it was somewhat of a of a growth at any cost, but not necessarily doing smart growth. So Polly, um, can I can I just ask you there when I Think about, you know, the Castrol brand lubricants versus the BP brand. Uh, you know, my take as a consumer is a very different sort of quality value proposition between Castrol and sort of the BP brand, as I've known it over the years. Was that an issue, uh, you know, in, in integrating these and, and going to market then? Yeah, think about it. BP bought Castro. So what happens when any, when any acquired company buys another company is all of a sudden you think all of your ideas and your products are the best products, right? And even though you might be buying somebody better than you, you still think all your products and your best practices are the best ones. And so as a result of that, they were going head to head. Um, with very, you know, BP and a lot of the management in BP that had come into Castro in the early days had really felt that BP brand should be just as strong as the Castro brand and positioned that way. And obviously the Castro heritage was very much so from a uh, brand perspective of a premium quality uh, motor oil lubricant. So the perception that BP wanted to be a premium band, along with Castro already being one, created that kind of tussle. And no one was really willing to, you know, say, hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on the BP side. We really shouldn't be making this brand a premium brand. Maybe we could actually <laughs> do a better, you know, go to market, take more share if we position them separately, where BP was more middle market price fighting and Castro was the premium quality brand vis-a-vis uh, -vis their, their equity and image. So that was that was the tussles that were going on that we saw at that time period. They, they were tussles back and forth, or was it the case that there there wasn't a single integrated marketing plan? But it sounds like both camps were doing whatever they wanted. I think I want to give more credit to the people that I that came before me to say that I think they were trying to work on a plan. But there was, you know, when you have two when you when you acquire a premium brand and your brand's not necessarily a premium, there's an awful lot of people that still want to figure out that, you know, push and pull on the edges to try to make BP and said we should have made, and this is what we ultimately did, some really clear cut decisions. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and no ambiguity about what was the role of the Castro brand and what was the role of the BP brand. I mean, an interesting story is that one of my, you know, after I got past the lions in the front door, uh, one of the first meetings that I took as they were giving me context about the, about the business was that all of a sudden every PowerPoint chart that was shown to me had the Castro brand and the BP brand on everything. And by the end of the, of the you know, 30 minute discussion, I couldn't figure out what was Castro and what was BP and how are we positioning them and you know, what was the differentiation between them. So in a 30 minute high level context, they couldn't even explain it to me and I was confused it was one of the first aha moments I had that said, wait a second, why on earth are we valuing the Castro brand as a premium brand and using the BP brand, either not using it or actually uh, positioning in a slightly different way uh, in a different segment of, of customers. And that's where it became us really then starting to simplify where we were going to use Castro and where we we're gonna use BP. Um, and quite frankly, being quite proud of wanting to use the Castro brand, even though we might have had BP hats when we walked in the door. And then yeah. you also mentioned um, you were getting complaints from external customers. Well, how did that happen? This sounds like it's an internal battle, and yet you said external customers are being impacted. Yeah, Mark, if you're a BMW workshop owner in Germany, for example, and you're, you, you are paying a premium, a wholesale premium to use uh, and to market Castro as your exclusive uh, product that goes in your okay. BMWs. But just down the road, there's a BP uh, workshop uh, who changes oils. And all of a sudden, their value proposition for that product is really similar to yours. What happens is you start to say to yourself, why am I paying a premium as a BMW workshop owner? Uh, sure. That's undercutting me. And um, and that's one of the, you know, obviously, if you're going to go with a house of brand strategy, multiple brands for different segments, you have to be super clear, not only on your brand strategy and value propositions, but also your customer, your go-to-market strategy. Uh, otherwise, your customers are super smart and super quick at figuring out, wait a second, why am I paying more? Sure. So did the customers figure that out faster oh, than BP gosh. and Castro did? Yeah, I think like anything, uh, of course, the customers figured it out fast. Um, but, the, you know, these are long-term customers of mm -hmm. Castro. Um, sure. And also... And this, you know, an interesting fun fact in the motor oil business, particularly with a customer like uh, BMW, these are very, these are formulated specifically for BMW vehicles. So it's a little bit, takes a little longer for you to quit uh, Castrol. But when we came in, there was certainly a growing momentum that uh, they were becoming dissatisfied with uh, some of the, the competition in the market with the same company. Polly, when you, uh, I was struck by your story about the PowerPoint presentation, but just thinking about the leadership aspects of driving that change now, where you sort of have the elephant in the room that is this dual branded strategy, and that needs to change in order to fix this business. So from a leadership perspective, how difficult was it for you to drive that change, both within the broader corporation and within the Castrol business? The good fortune 
for when I came in at the time I did was in some ways that the business was showing that it was in decline, right? So the burning bridge was becoming really apparent. And at that point, then it becomes a little bit easier for an executive like me to come in and raise the question and be a little bit more bold. Um, And so, but certainly, you know, I think that I demonstrated, and I still believe this sincerely many years later, that Castro was full of, was a great acquisition for BP. It had some really great professional talent, uh, particularly in sales and the technical aspects. Um, They just were outstanding uh, and marketing. Three really great capabilities in that business. I learned an awful lot while I was there. What I came in is I respected that. I think that's a really important element when you're doing an integration as a senior executive is that you have to have, you have to come with an open mind and really respect what you bought. Uh, You bought it for a reason um, and try to take whatever hat that you were wearing and say to yourself, I've got a new hat, a bigger hat, and I need to really respect what I bought and, and get the most value out of it. And, um, and, you know, one of the other tricks is going back in the archives, you know, CMO for Castro, there was a lot of great material, a lot of great programs from the past. So I have to go back is about 20 years, everybody's gone, usually from that period of time, drag it out of the file cabinet, and re- reissue it, uh, saying that somehow you discovered it uh, with a little asterisk by it saying, hey, I borrowed it from the past. But I did a lot of that because think about it. They were bruised from the acquisition. They were bruised because they, 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 their pride was a little was impacted. Right. right. And so all I had to do was just respect it, pay some homage to the past. Plus, there were some great ideas back there in the olden days and bring it forward. And so I, I had a fair wind at my back. I was quite fortunate. I was going to ask about that because, again, you had people that you had camps that were settling. Those two lions were starting to face away from each other. You had people settling in. And when you start to make that emotional investment, sometimes it's really hard to move off of it. So it sounds like by going back to the past, that was a huge help for Castro. But what about the other side? What about the fact that there were obviously a bunch of people from BP that thought that they were the best way to do things too? Yeah, I think at that point, Mark, that they were also – wanting i think we were able to figure out a way to get them to feel like they were part of castrol but the two it wasn't two hats anymore it was one hat and it just so happened that the majority of the hat was branded red and white in castrol we worked for this great entity called bp um but actually getting everybody to have pride uh but the burning bridge helped burning bridges are good whether you invent them or they're real um and managing in a kind of an internal crisis uh and because crises can be really helpful uh and motivating and motivating there was a burning bridge and so people were willing to recognize that and uh and so it was really about building respect and having the bp people feel part of it as one team and we did quite a bit of communications and global summits and things like that to get everybody engaged the second thing that was bubbling around as we joined the team was globalization versus localization. Castro, by 
heritage had been very, very decentralized. Individual countries had a lot of power to determine the direction for whatever they wanted to do to, to be successful. BP came in, went more to a centralization model, happens a lot in integrations because you want to control everything. You just spend a lot of money and you want to control everything and get your hands around it. And uh, I think one of the other things we figured out was how to get strike the right balance between local and global. We actually called it, we call it global in order to, and that helped Mark too with getting the right balance because people then started to feel like they had a little bit more invested into the decisions because certainly the pendulum had gone way too far toward global globalizing everything, every decision, every operational move. To bring you back down to the Castro for a minute, I'm just I'm so curious about sort of the emotional aspects of this uh, because that's a fairly high stress situation you're walking into every day, and I'm curious how that felt like for you walking in the building each day, kind of knowing there were these stresses going on. How did you manage that? And then. What about the folks you were who were in the building you were walking into? You know, a lot of emotions and stress there too. So paint that picture for us, if you will. I was a carpetbagger. I came in from, uh, you know, I wasn't even BP Heritage. I was the Amoco Heritage and still had that hat on uh, that people kind of labeled me. There weren't a few, there weren't too many of us in Europe at that time. Um, and uh, and then I had just come over to the U.S., had never worked in the motor oil business. So everything, everything about me said, reject me like a kidney transplant. But, you know, hey, you're, you're, you're uh, paid the big bucks to figure that yeah. out. I, I found the, the way to manage that is to, quickly build relationships, build relationships with the people who want you, build relationships with the people who don't want you. And usually the people who don't want to work with you uh, do have an ax to grind. And if you can figure out what it is, but I'm a big one about, uh, and this is a functional role, operating roles in some ways, when you get parachuted in a carpetbagger are easier because it's very hierarchical. Uh, functional roles are, as you both probably know in your career, is very much more difficult. You have to grease the matrix in order to, to build support for uh, what you want to do. Edicts don't work very well as a functional. You can get away with them in an operational, very difficult in a functional role. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of greasing the matrix and, and building relationships. So it's meetings, it's face-to-face. I travel the world to meet with uh, business unit leaders, listened. I uh, had, you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly calls and did everything I could to build relationships as quickly as I could and try to get uh, become a friend versus a carpetbagger. So how quickly, going back to, you got called in and you walked between the lines at some point, but as you look back on that, should you have been there sooner? Did they wait too long to bring you in? Did it cost more than it would have if they'd well, spotted this earlier? I, 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 you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't want to speak for, I, I always think hindsight's 20, and you guys know those Titans completely 2020. Should it have happened a couple of years earlier? Maybe. Could we have made the progress? I mean, we made some tremendous progress. Um, and I'm just not saying me, I'm saying mm-hmm. the leadership team 
over the next five years, tripled the income for and became one of the most successful uh, businesses and is still a star prize within the BP portfolio. So could it have happened earlier, Mark? Absolutely. Could we have made as much progress as we had made if we hadn't had the burning bridge, if we hadn't had the crisis? Right. I'm not sure. Okay. So it almost had to stew to a point. So people yeah. Were... I mean, it's, it sounds sad. Motivation when you, when you don't, when you're really going that far south and uh, the deal is cratering, it is amazing how you can catch people's attention, even those that might have been real strong haters mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning. Holly, from your perspective, then, what are the key takeaways for companies or even for boards of directors who are contemplating a major merger? You know, what recommendations would you make for them? Well, interestingly, Tom, I just put an article out on CSP Daily, which was a convenience retailing sector uh, daily news service. And uh, it's it's uh, the title of it, you've won the bid, now what? And I put some, uh, some uh, just four, uh, there's, I've probably got about 100, but just four pieces of advice out there. And when I think about, you know, I was thinking about the Castrol acquisition when I wrote it, but... I, I think some of the things that communication wasn't uh, a real strong suit. As I mentioned, they really moved to a, a global organizational strategy very quickly. And that stifled a lot of communication. And so one of the things that happens in integrations is that everybody's super polite in the beginning. Nobody wants to ruffle any feathers. Nobody wants to upset the apple cart. Nobody wants to be viewed as a troublemaker. So Issues that are bubbling up a lot of times don't ever make it to uh, senior levels. They're all kind of, you know, squashed. And so one of the recommendations I have is build into your deal economics that you're going to actually add additional overhead to put some of the people that you know and trust to tell you the truth about what is really happening here at the right places in the organization. And you're gonna get some pushback because then the, the acquired organization is not gonna be real keen on to see carpetbaggers right, uh, show up. But there's a better chance that you're gonna actually understand what's happening in the business. Because remember, when you buy a business, the systems aren't, aren't you know, they're not your systems, they're not your, you're really having to, to deal with getting information in very different ways than you might in a day-to-day -day running the business. You're not getting real-time data coming in. You're relying no, on the people yeah. in the company not, to yeah. relate that exactly. to you. Exactly. So do people, information from people who understand the business and know the business, but a lot of reasons people don't do that initially is because they don't want to spend the money. They don't want to put the overhead in. But if you plan for it, your deal economics, there's a good chance that uh, A, you'll, you'll do it because uh, you plan for it. And I think you're going to more than get that money back because you're actually seeing and hearing about um, opportunities uh, right off the bat. And uh, probably the second one that's that's relevant to Cashel that I'll that I'll uh, talk about from that article um, is thinking about as well how do you go more quickly? You know, in the article I say whatever you think your integration time frame is, go four times more quickly. And uh, the reason I say that is that I think everybody is looking for that perfect moment and that perfect way to bring the two organizations together. 
And there is no perfect way and there's no perfect moment because there is just so many dynamics that are happening when you're bringing two companies together. And if you can do it quickly, kind of rip the bandaid off and do it quickly and learn from it and pivot if it's not working, there's a much better chance you're going to get to. And a lot of people say, well, what about all the change? You're going to do change management all the time. If you're waiting to make a decision, there's a lot of inertia that's happening in an organization. Better to just move forward with what you think is the right way and fix it as you go. So decisive leadership. Set your course and implement. Go. Yep. And then use all that feedback you're getting from those people you've placed and those communication strategies to move forward and uh, and and fix it. Well, Polly, in the end, uh, having lived through that and numerous other um, acquisitions over the years, do, do you feel satisfied with where that business landed uh, after your efforts there? Yeah, I think I was, like I said, I was really lucky and fortunate to work with such a great group of professionals at Castro. It's just been, it was a really fantastic time. Uh, the business was booming across the world and we really got to, uh, we uh, ended up using a World Cup sponsorship uh, in 2010 to actually unify our marketing program and kind of create this global global and local uh, use of this global property. And um, and so it was just a really, met some wonderful, wonderful, talented people and, uh, and was very fortunate to spend six years with them. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then please like and subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating. We'd really appreciate it. And please tell your friends and colleagues about us as well. We'll see you again soon on another episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. 